Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit apertureHub.co. Welcome to part two of our COVID-19 special. Once again, we have three experts in their field who are going to offer their assessments and predictions. First, we welcome back Anthemist partner David Galbraith, who goes big picture, imagining the future of everything from transport to healthcare to supermarket supply chains and how technology will continue to transform it all. Our second guest narrows in on the future of fintech. We are talking to Thierry Zos, and he is part of the investment team at the Dutch venture capital fund, Finch Capital. And they recently put out a report titled The Future of Disruptive and Enabling Financial Technology Post-CV-19. So our Structural Shifts host, Ben Robinson, talks to Terry about the report's highlights and then dives deeper into talking about the future of challenger banks and discussing the importance of things like honest employee communications within an organization. And then Martin McCann, CEO of Trade Ledger, completes the conversation. He says that a lot of government leaders have talked about going to war against the pandemic, but when it comes to overseeing banking and how to really help SMEs, they are leading with a peacetime mentality. Martin gets into the why behind this and then what the repercussions could be and how we might be able to change course. In the UK, could the government join forces with fintech to solve its problems? Are we about to see a rapid product innovation cycle for trade finance? Martin discusses all of this and more. Enjoy the show. Dave, welcome back onto the Structural Shifts podcast. I can imagine, I mean, you're a deep thinker anyway, and I can imagine that since you've been in isolation and since your your role is to look at future investment opportunities, you've been thinking about the pandemic and the post-pandemic world a lot. So we wanted to sort of, you know, to pick your brain and and have you share some of your thinking. What's the right place to start to, as we, you know, as we look at the post-pandemic world? What's the sort of right prism through which to look at future opportunities, do you think? two components to that. So one is there's enormous amount of noise at the moment and even the experts don't know the answers to things like are people immune? And so all the decisions about what have been made by politicians, for example, and things like lockdown are based on ins- insufficient information because they will get, but people have to make calls. So no one has the right answers. And the more you read, the more you realize that even the experts differ at the moment. The information isn't there. There there is no agreement in terms of peer-reviewed papers at the scientific level. There are no answers. But there are some macro trends based on the response that will be permanent. And the two anthemists that we focused on is that there were structural, secular structural changes that were happening anyway, and that this shock to the system isn't going to reset those changes, it's going to accelerate them. Um, and then some of, those, some of those examples would be trivial, like more people are likely to use video conferencing or work yep. from home. Or, and, 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 but some are not less trivial, like is it going to be a Chinese-driven global hegemony versus a US one? So 
the one aspect is this acceleration of of structural changes and the and the second is that the trade off in any system is between efficiency and resilience and by that what i mean is an efficient system the more efficient it becomes the less it, it's perfectly adapted to a particular environment and if that environment changes then it's very fragile so so you're talking about just in time precisely supply chains and yeah yeah so an example of that would be um french supermarkets had far less disruption in terms of empty shelves than uk ones because there was more inventory in the french supply chain because it was actually less efficient there were a lot more local producers and the country is actually less dense so so the so that inefficiency made it more resilient to a changing landscape and so we'll see we'll see much more focus i think going forward on people having to create insurance for 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 changing environments through redundancy and if we're practical about that so what what could be some of the examples of that beyond you know more inventory and supply chains and maybe more locally sourced products what what other ways do you think we might see that trend towards greater resiliency manifest itself do you think if we looked at um a really out there one there'll be lots of changes to the way people interact the supply chain so and a, and a bizarre one was let's say delta airlines decided to to change the way that they would board aircraft in the past first class passengers would pay lots of money to sit with a glass of prosecco while people filed past them and now they're vulnerable to people coughing on them so they've decided to change the way that planes are boarded and so you could argue that's a, in a weird way uh, an insurance policy against being coughed on so it's a it's a redundancy in terms of of changing a system to make something more desirable that was less desirable in the past i think we will see all sorts of weird subtle adaptations to change less density on public transport obviously yep. it's more efficient to pack people full on public transport um as full as possible now it might be a good idea to have actually more vehicles on the road in terms of public transport more buses for example and less people on those buses because you might want them to be less packed and how do how do we affect some of those changes for example like, you know if you if you imagine a world where we want to have more people using public transport such that this the proportion of public transport on the roads versus private vehicles is higher and then we want the density of those of those buses and trains to be lower how would we actually practically make that happen do you think so so these are this goes back to the, the fact that there are unknowns the world will be very very different if it turns out we have a vaccine and this is a one off yeah or if people are immune for 5 years after having got this thing versus immune only for 3 months and it being seasonal and every year like we, we, so we don't know i mean and and so that so all we can do is create plausible scenarios for a range of outcomes and those scenarios are very 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 different if it if this is endemic versus it's a one off and if it's endemic do you see that the state takes a bigger role you know so the state obviously is sort of grab war like powers to intervene and you know make us stay at home and to, to to sort of take a bigger role in our lives and do you think that could become sort of semi permanent 
if absolutely and we'll see we'll see the the so-called asian model being the one that is seen to be um better than the highly individualistic western model where the trade-off is the argument over things like privacy um in exchange for let's say us sharing contact data so that we our whereabouts is known and that provides us with some safety that that, that argument might be over that being said the, the people when you look at the Google and Apple teaming up on this or is that the opposite approach might be that they're taking the view of trying to make this anonymous another option might be to make it highly transparent yeah. to go for radical candor in terms of information sharing so that no one abusive actor uh can take advantage and i suppose the difficulty will be if it if we do get a vaccine it will be shutting down some of the things that we temporarily had to do to stop the spread post pandemic yeah on the on so if we if we look at some of these secular structural trends that are accelerating because of the pandemic which ones do you think are most interesting which from a from the point of view of investing or creating new business models or new businesses do you think so i, I think there might be there are lots of them people were worried about automation and losing jobs and we're now seeing a bunch of very underpaid people like delivery workers or nurses suddenly becoming proven to be utterly critical so i think you will see the relative importance of social the the premium paid for social proximity i.e. human caring professions human so so and this will be part of the backlash the the value of human interaction will be at a premium and and so how that plays out online in terms of online investment is that ordinary social media has has, has remained largely flat but real time social media and that includes things like peloton and that includes house party and that includes people doing concerts live that includes virtual busking by musicians this this is increased by up to 75% because people will crave real time experiences and i think we'll we'll look back at this period when people were watching uh netflix programs on their own asynchronously when no one else was watching the same thing as being a lo- quite a lonely period of of media and, I, and so i think that that is something that's highly investable in the future is real time shared experience Yeah and I think it what one of the things is interesting is it introduces social network effects into businesses that we never thought had them like Netflix. Yeah. Because Netflix I always thought was a business that had some sort of data network effects in the sense that it understood you better can make better recommendations but had very few other network effects but if we think that it really matters to watch Netflix at the same time as your friends and comment on it then it brings a whole new level of value to it right and a new level of lock in and precisely and i think this will happen with the net with Netflix it will happen with the spotify there's an opportunity in <coughs> real time music yeah what about fintech where do you see the opportunities in fintech so in in this macro shift from efficiency to resilience and we don't mean an extreme shift where everything is purely resilient it's a balance but it's been it's been that balance is being retipped towards resilience obviously insurance is that's what insurance is about so the the opportunities for expanding the the, the market for insurance are massive 
And is I just I meant to mention this earlier, but is is resilience the right word? Because resilience sort of suggests that you know you that something endures disruption and it goes back to the way it was before, and versus it's adaptable to a new environment. Yes. So, so, so it's not that it springs back, like you say, which is the resilient notion. No, it's something that's, that's fluid. So it won't be the same insurance as before. It'll be new insurance that's born up, that's born to kind of for, for, for natively for the new pandemic, post-pandemic world. Uh, there, there, certainly there are new opportunities, but it's not, it's, it's not yes, that the, the landscape of everything has changed and therefore there are, there are new products and new opportunities. But the, the fact that there's a switch towards adapt- adaptability doesn't mean that all insurance changes itself. It just means that the market for insurance has increased. The whole push towards digital financial services accelerates too. And how do you see that? What will be the factors that determine the winners and losers there? Because, you know, anything, any kind of fintech company born, I don't know, post 2010 or whatever is, is digitally native. So what will be the winners between the ones that, that were, that have sprung up in recent years? I leased a car recently and they wanted me to go to the local office to sign the paperwork. And of course, as soon as COVID hit, it turned out I didn't have to do that. I could do it all online. There was nothing stopping them doing it online beforehand. Clearly, in terms of structure, it was purely attitude and mindset and no sort of can-do attitude. I think that that's part of this whole acceleration of change that's happening now is that people can make decisions and go and not have to do six months of PowerPoint presentations to the rest of the company to make a decision to actually say we're going to switch to Zoom video, they can decide overnight, we're doing this and this is the way it is. And so a lot, since a lot of fintech was actually quite bland opportunities that were an upgrade to digital, which is literally getting rid of yep. filming and paperwork, a lot of that stuff, the, the, the last barriers to that have just crumbled. So do, you, so, whoever, yeah. so do you see more sort of B2B than B2C opportunities then in all those B2B um, fintech companies that can help the incumbents to sort of become more efficient and, and you know, deliver a better sort of digital experience? That might be where a lot of the action is. Well, so I think the, our view at Anthemis was always that what was happening to financial services was more than more than just an upgrade to the digital era by finance. It was finance itself was becoming more like the internet. It was structurally changing. So the 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 getting rid of paperwork opportunities, standard fintech stuff. It's just upgrade. The the B2B angles and the reason why there are more B2B angles is because of this expansion of, of the what financial services can do when it becomes more like the internet of financial services means that you're recreating the infrastructure of financial services and there are B2B opportunities to plug that infrastructure into any vertical to embed financial services into other products that aren't necessarily financial services companies. So in the past, you go to your bank and you go to your insurance company, but now your insurance is plugged into your car when you buy it, is bundled with the product. So this idea of embedded finance is a macro shift. And do you think it's a macro shift that's accelerated by the pandemic or carries on as normal? 
Yeah, I think in these structural shifts that were under change are accelerated. So, they, so the the two accelerations in financial services, the the last holdouts against fintech crumble. Yep. Which is the upgrade to the digital era, and then this structural transformation of financial services to become a network also accelerates. And what about in other fields? So I know um, probably this is taking you a bit outside of <laughs> scope, but. Presumably, there's massive opportunities in areas like healthcare, for example, that that yeah. are maybe things that you don't look at every day, but but I would imagine you've been thinking about. So obviously, this is one of the, these areas where it requires expert knowledge to look at pure healthcare services. But if you're to look at the business of healthcare or the the structural changes to it, you can have a view. And one of the possible views is that well is that it decentralizes. There are two aspects of healthcare that might change. One is the number of people going to visit a doctor is suddenly going to reduce because doctors shouldn't be exposed to lots of sick people at the moment. It's actually dangerous for them. And so telemedicine will increase massively at the the general practitioner level for that first that first interaction with with health the healthcare services that a lot of that will go online and 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 that sounds trivial but i recently during this process went to a pharmacy to get a, a ventolin inhaler for a hay fever was told that i had to phone the emergency services because they wouldn't fill the prescription and the emergency services in france told me that i had to see a doctor in person and when I told them I would just go on the internet, they said that wasn't possible. But when I hung up the phone and I did go on the internet, within 15 minutes, I had a prescription and went back and filled it. So, so the, it helps the healthcare service to accelerate yep. uh, these changes to decentralize. So that's at that first level. And then the second level, there was a New England um, Journal of Medicine article that's suggesting that what's that the comorbidities, i.e. most people that seem to be dying in hospitals have under, other underlying conditions. And that one of those underlying conditions might actually be provided by the hospital itself. Right? If, you're, if your immune system was compromised, you're entering a place full of sick people. And, and that concentrating sick people in one yep. place, where we've seen hospitals actually quite often have um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria and all sorts of things. It might be that the whole healthcare system has to decentralize as well and that you see elective procedures done in completely different places from trauma and things, things that, that maybe are best handled in large hospitals. So in a way, it's a sort of is it, it, healthcare in a way just becomes networked as well, right? Which is because bringing people into hospitals, are, again, are about economies of scale and, and things that are less important in a networked world. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I think there's the structural characteristics of networks, which occur in all sorts of areas from container shipping, by modularity and being able to move things any from anywhere to anywhere, as opposed to very hierarchical industrial views of the world. They, these things are ubiquitous and they're they're cropping up as say from container shipping to the internet to financial services, and and the next one we've been looking at is energy. Is is that that energy is going, the, the, the delivery of electricity is going to look more internet-like than it currently does. I just want to um, 
revisit something you said at the start, which is we there's there's no consensus among experts about what this means or what the right response necessarily is. So as you said, people have been making big calls, they've been shutting down the economy. I suppose implicit in the all the actions that have taken place so far is there's a sort of binary choice between human life on the one side and the economy on the other. And I think you know, I think the Italians sort of in a way set the precedent by by standing up and saying, you know, we'll put human life ahead of the economy. But it's not as black and white, is it? Is that no. and I just wondered if, you know, if you if you had sort of thought about the morality of 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 the response we've seen so far in terms of shutting down the economy. So a lot, a lot of the suffering and an actual death that will end up being caused by the shutdown, whether it's direct, like depression or suicide rates, which definitely increased in Greece after the two thousand eight eight crisis significantly. A lot of these things are unmeasurable and and long term, and 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 could be things like people not having as much money and not eating as well or drinking too much or, or uh, stress and heart attacks. And like, we don't know these effects, but they could be colossal. But a politician at the moment being given a choice between two things, between we saw the reaction against herd immunity because obviously if people, that's directly measurable. If you make a call to let people die, at some point, that's politically unsustainable. Even Sweden has backed down from that. But that doesn't mean to say people aren't going to die because you lock down the economy. They will. Um, and so, but that, but there isn't any, there isn't much immediate political cost for that call, which is why I think it's maybe a bit kind to say that Macron has made the right call because Macron has doubled down on lockdown, but it might be that there's a lot of pain and suffering coming to France from locking down in a more extreme way than other places. We don't know. Thankfully, I don't have to make those kind of decisions. Yeah. I, I wouldn't blame any politician for making, making either call because they have to make decisions on, they have to make decisions but they have to make decisions on, on insufficient data, and we don't know at the moment. And not only is it insufficient data, we, don't, we, will, we may never know the cost of shutting things down. And it may be that that cost is far more severe in developing countries where there is no social safety net, that if you can't cut someone's hair, if you're a hairdresser, you literally starve. These kind of things are, 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 are going to be very unpleasant. Last question. There's been lots and lots of discussion about whether this, the shape of this recovery, right? And I suppose, you know, leaving aside the, you know, the sort of black swan event of, you know, vaccine in the next three months or whatever, how do you see this playing out in terms of it being, you know, U-shaped, L-shaped, V-shaped? You know, how quickly will we get back to decent economic growth again? And how much do you think these things have been factored into into people's economic models? I think the range of scenarios is still massive. So this, you still could see a, a V-shaped recovery. It's still plausible. But that range of scenarios also includes some very long-term uh, depressions. And like that. We don't know. Nobody knows. And, and certainly because we don't know, that very, the actual doubt isn't priced in. 
yeah. to, the, to the markets. So the markets are irrational at the moment, not because things are going to be terrible or things are going to bounce back. It's because we don't know, and therefore that isn't priced in. And what does that mean for a venture capitalist then? You know, what's the right way to think of this as, a, as, a, as an investor? So of those range of outcomes, a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery, it would have to be a very long year for it to for the difference between those things to actually affect venture capital because you're looking at 10-year cycles. If things bounce back in the next six months or in the next two or three years, it actually doesn't make that much difference in terms of the, the outcome as long as they bounce back in that, in that period. So, it's, so of those range of scenarios, only the really extreme ones that would affect um, venture capital over the, over the investment period. So do you think most venture capitalists that therefore are being unnecessarily pessimistic or, 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 or taking unnecessarily strong action in not backing many companies? Because you, you say, you... So you're seeing people say things that are different from what they're doing? Yep. And you're seeing lots and you're seeing a whole spectrum of what people say. So it's largely noise. What we wanted to discuss was the report that you put out a few weeks back, yeah. which is entitled The Future of Disruptive and Enabling Financial Technology Post-CV19. And um, so we'll, we'll share the link to it uh, for the listeners. But it's, in essence, it's a 26-slide presentation jam-packed with interesting data, sort of predicting what might be some of the near and medium-term impacts of COVID-19. And what, one conclusion that seems to jump out from the report is that there's like this clear dichotomy between consumer-facing fintech companies that face lower volume, shrinking assets, etc., and the B2B fintech companies whose technology is now in really strong demand because you know financial services see that they basically have little choice but to become more digital more quickly. Would you say that's sort of like the that's fair, that that's this sort of overarching conclusion? To a certain extent, yes. But like overall, I mean, it depends on which industry you're in, right? Uh, so if, you, if you're if you like a fintech that is in this trading space, like Robinhood, Box, uh, Flow, and other players, uh, they're experiencing at least a, a lot of growth at the moment, you know, because main reason is that uh, because of volatility, it's his best friend, right? So um, they're, they're seeing a lot of people... Uh, coming, signing up onto their website. And that's mainly also due because the market is so crazy, but also because people have a lot of time. They do not have any more the same uh, spending. So uh, they, they save quite a bit of money and they say to themselves, hey, why shouldn't I launch myself onto such a platform and, and see how, how, how this all worked, the whole stock exchange market. But of course, then you have other uh, consumer-facing technologies such as, uh, let's say, say N26 or, or Revolut, that they're, they're taking a big hit because uh, they are really focusing on, on uh, uh, their clientele uh, to actually travel and to use their effects, uh, which is yep. built into their, into, into their application in order to spend and use their card, which is currently uh, more on the rare end. Um, uh, so it really depends on which vertical that you're looking at. But overall, yeah, consumer facing uh, generally takes a bigger hit. Now, if we look on the B2B side, I think it's a very hard time if you're planning on uh, signing on new clients 
Uh, main reason because, you know, they are very old fashioned uh, type of sales and very long. So there are a lot of proce uh, procedures in place and a, a lot of face to face is actually quite necessary, you know, in, to build a certain trust. Given that it is such a big animal, they, they really want to make sure uh, that the, any technology or any person that they onboard is, is the right technology for them and the right cultural fit, so to speak. Therefore, in the, in the current crisis, in order to signing up new clients at the moment is quite quite difficult, I must say. However, um, uh, you know, everybody's working from home, uh, like you and me, and uh, also the, the ones that work at the incumbents, they work from home. And, uh, well, they will be working on existing portfolios, right, or, or existing uh, openings that they still have. And if you had started already your sales uh, a couple of months back, uh, then uh, the likelihood that you will close them is still quite high. It just obviously will delay a bit, but the, 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 the funnel will uh, come to it Another thing I want to ask you is, in the report, you talk about this shift to digital only triggering what you call a, quote unquote, big pocket online battle between incumbents and challengers. Um, and what I want to ask you is, which challenges do you see as having big enough pockets to win that fight? And do you think this might be the moment for some of the internet platforms to make a bigger move? And then lastly, do you see that VCs are prepared to just keep writing checks to fund this battle? particularly where challenger banks are concerned yeah so it's a, it's a very good question so maybe maybe let me start on on the vc side it depends which fund you are right uh, the problem is uh, when uh, you raise a fund people might commit capital to this fund you know uh, let it be incumbents family offices etc etc but uh, given that it's such a huge crisis you know people then suddenly start thinking okay should we not allocate this money to something else and actually take up the penalty fee for us not being able to pay uh, a fund you know so there is definitely money in the market the question is whether they will be able to pull it out and and use it in order to invest Right, and that's why it's also extremely hard um, uh, to invest, at, uh, to 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 raise capital at the moment, uh, both from a fund perspective and from a, from a startup perspective, simply because uh, there is not a lot uh, in the market. Um, given that, of you obviously will give a very big hit on uh, on valuation uh, for for the for the various given startups, but also notably on the later stage companies. Um, uh, such as you know uh, where incumbents jump in, and generally incumbents they they do not are not so sensitive about valuation, and they're okay to pay a, a, a premium, so to speak. But given the the current circumstances, there will be some strong negotiations, and we have seen in the market that that a lot of VC uh, uh, corporate VC uh, led arms pulled out on 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 investments uh, due to the the whole uncertainty. It, it really depends um, how you are funded, uh, from where your money uh, comes from. But uh, yeah, definitely, there will be some tech companies that uh, uh, will be able to accelerate even further uh, uh, and, and use this uh, window of opportunity in order to come out even stronger. In short, then, you see this as so you've got this sort of relatively deep pocketed incumbents, although clearly they're facing some some liquidity challenges themselves potentially right versus mm -hmm. the tech companies and then do you do you see that you'll see consolidation in in the challenger bank space then absolutely so uh, i see we see consolidation throughout the verticals which makes sense right so the, the reason being is that many many will come into difficulties when it comes down to business runway and uh, and and just uh, uh, volume 
So consolidation is the next uh, logical step, um, uh, but we're looking more at, at lower valuations, right? So anything between 50 uh, to 150 uh, type acquisitions, not not bigger than that. We also expect that uh, the road to IPO is going to be uh, so much more difficult. Um, it's going to be really tough for, for companies to go all the way down that road, uh, given that uh, there is not any more this hungriness, or we expect that there won't be any more as much hungriness as there used to be in terms of uh, uh, capital providers. Would you sort of predict that the, the largest, most established challenger banks will fare okay, right? So there might, there might be some sort of flight to quality or whatever away from challenger banks. But in general, the largest ones, the most established ones will be okay. That some of the smaller ones, as you said, right, 50 to 150, they might get swallowed up by some of the larger challenger banks. Yeah. What happens to the people in the middle then? Well, that, that, that's, that, that depends, right? They might shift towards the 50 to 150 million. Some might take a hit and, 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 and take a hit also on their valuation. And actually, you know, they might have been worth more uh, a couple of months back. But now, given the situation, they took a, they took a haircut. Or uh, they actually flourish, right? That really depends on their positioning and, and, and how they actually use this, this crisis in order to, to come out stronger. I can, I can imagine scenarios where, you know, uh, smaller challenger banks that are, that are younger are, are being acquired um, because it's a, it's, it's a great acquisition uh, uh, moment as well if you have capital in the back, you know, uh, in order to uh, gain terrain and, and, and uh, dominate uh, certain regions. And that obviously becomes also more interesting uh, for, for, for the large incumbents such as banks uh, to, to then look at the bigger ones such as N26, for example, uh, in order to uh, uh, buy them and, and incorporate them straight into their digital transformation because these guys, we clearly see that they're taking a huge hit by cutting down on, on everything, which is the, the local chains, you know, like the, the, the shops where you, you go in in order to, to, to uh, have like the branches. That's what I mean. So what they will uh, need to cut on is on operations and, and contact centers, right? So and where they will need a lot of uh, uh, innovation is around Salesforce, uh, central business units, uh, product development and, and technology acquiring then such a player uh, might be a very smart move for them in order to um, uh, re-identify themselves in a way. Do you, do you not think that valuations would need to fall a, fall a long way for incumbent banks to buy challenger banks? Because Absolutely. Yeah, because otherwise they're going to see massive dilution, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they're taking a, a tremendous hit. And I do not know. I mean, these are, these are predictions, right? Already the challenger banks, they, they were part of a sort of a bubble. Uh, right, uh, they they raise crazy amounts of of money with crazy crazy valuations without actually having some significant revenue uh, based on uh, a, a couple of KPIs uh, with multiples that were outrageous or maybe not outrageous but just uh, which have never been seen before in the industry. Maybe it's just a correction. And uh, definitely, uh, some people will definitely lose money in, in, in all these transactions, but others will also flourish from it. So you have both. You have winners and losers in this. And would, would you say that Challenger Banks was the area in fintech where valuations had become most sort of overinflated and therefore where valuations need to come down most? To a certain extent, yes. I have never seen any, any such a thing in terms of valuation on how uh, they, they they put the multiple on on their revenues, for example, uh, compared to any other industry. 
So, so I think that the relative valuation, like price revenues is like 50 X plus. Whereas if you go to a consumer lending, maybe the, the low, like the lowest, let's say is like 10 and the highest is like 30, you know? Um, uh, and if you go into, uh, like enabling fintechs uh, like uh, UiPath, it's anywhere between 10 and 20 because they actually have some significant revenue in it. You said earlier on that the that you think some of the sort of mid-sized challenger banks could flourish, right? If, and and you, you said if they get the positioning right. Could you maybe just more concretely say what you think is the right positioning and the right response for fintech companies in this sort of pandemic and post-pandemic environment? Well, difficult question for, for me. Yeah, too. big question. So, you, yeah, you can break it down. A company I like quite a lot is called Bunk um, and, and the way how they position themselves. Now, I do not even remember exactly uh, how they position themselves, but the story goes as follows. Basically, for every 100 euros spent or 1,000 euros spent, Bunk, for example, uh, plants a tree for you. Given the whole COVID situation, you can say, and, and, and how the weather is, is playing, at least, at least in Central uh, Western Europe, we're seeing uh, like uh, four or five weeks straight of sunshine and everything. And you see how nature changed, so to speak, given uh, the cut on, uh, on, uh, on CO2 emissions, uh, cars, uh, uh, flights, you name it, you get it. I think that really speaks to the heart of many, many people out there. So if you can make an offering uh, that speaks to the heart, such as, hey, if you if you spend 100 euros or 1,000 euros every time with this card, we're going to go plant a tree, and that is thanks to you. You know, I, I think it has a lot to do with the messaging and, and, and with what you identify yourself with. Um, uh, so that would be maybe one way how to position yourself, going more into the yeah, uh, nature-friendly uh, sort of vision um, uh, that, that, that might be a, a path that you could choose in order to acquire more uh, users and, and, uh, and, uh, and double down on the ones that you already acquired. And in general, what, what kind of advice are you giving to your portfolio companies about how to prepare for this crisis and then how maybe to capitalize on it once, you know, once we start to get through it? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it really depends. Like some some uh, startups, they actually flourish, uh, but uh, majority of them don't. Uh, so um, uh, the, I think the most important is uh, managing losses with speed and equity. You know, um, uh, be realistic about fun, uh, fundraising landscape. So if you were planning on raising X amount, well, maybe this X amount becomes now X minus Y. Um, uh, and also the time in order to reach that target has been significantly increased. I think also during those time, psychology within the company is really, really important. So I would really communicate openly with the staff and uh, put as much effort as you can in product development. Cut down on marketing spend and just focus only on uh, return on investment channel, like high return on investment channels. And uh, if you are if you are fortunate to come out of a country uh, that uh, uh, or a where there is a government that that supports uh, uh, these companies in crisis, then try to leverage them as much as possible. Uh, uh, such as in the UK, Germany, France, uh, there there are many aids uh, put in place in order for for them uh, to keep the startups afloat. You're quite unique in the sense that you you invest in Europe, but you also invest in Southeast Asia. Correct. Well, what is the what is the environment like in Southeast Asia relative to Europe? 
you know, do you think now, as in terms of, you know, uh, the the levels of demand, the levels of funding, the levels of government support, and then also how do you see it emerging post-pandemic? From a support perspective, I think Europe is better served. That has something to do also with history. Um, uh, but uh, I think from uh, from an economical point of view, I believe that uh, Asia will recover way quicker um, uh, uh, than, than Europe that did. But that's still a gamble, right? I, I mean, like they, they reopened again uh, uh, many of their factories, but they have seen also again a jump in terms of infection. You guys, you surveyed, I think, um, a whole bunch of, so 95, right, companies asking them, uh, once this is over, will there be, do you predict that there'll be stronger demand for your product? And two questions on this, right? So first of all, everybody's saying basically not sure or yes, right? And then the two questions are, firstly, like who's seeing, who, if anybody, is seeing stronger demand now? And then secondly, is this the moment where you know fintech really comes of age is this the moment is this the sort of shot in the arm that fintech needed do you think to get wider adoption from corporates and wider adoptions from, from, from wider adoption from consumers i mean from a from a from a digitalization point of view absolutely for incumbents it's it's really covid-19 that that really forced them in a sort of way uh, 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 to to push them towards this direction because simply they they, they didn't have another choice you know and and perhaps if we didn't have uh, uh, this 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 crisis that kicked in uh, this process might have led so much longer and before any implementation was put in place we could have been like maybe five to ten years down the road um, uh, so it's kind of like an accelerated uh, state uh, so to speak. Um, and now coming down on, 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 on some companies that, that flourish and some don't. So it really depends, right? And in any vertical you, you can have. So I mentioned before the trading applications, they're doing extremely well. Uh, whereas uh, SME lending um, uh, uh, does, I can imagine, is doing extremely bad because of the default worries uh, that are in the yeah. market, right? Um, uh, same with wealth management, uh, de-risking investors withdraw, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there are other uh, uh, players as well, um, uh, such as in the prop tech industry, uh, if you're in the in the deposits uh, 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 or in the marketplace. Uh, but I think the overarching winner in this is mainly the companies that enable fintechs uh, to do better, right? And are, are there any particular companies you would, or, or you know, segment subsegments you would call out there? Because I think in your report, for example, you talk about the you know what while SME lending might be tough, the platforms that enable SME lending are booming, right? So, yeah, which other which other sub sub segments would you call out uh, in the B two B space? If if we look at that, if we look at your example at the moment, so I think KYC will play a bigger role than ever before. Um, and KYC, not only, you know, uh, just from a legal perspective, but also really in order to identify quality clients, you know, uh, yeah. let's take, for example, the lending space. If, if you had a technology in the background that could run and really, really create a whole scoring card on your, uh, 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 on your, on your, on your client, like it never did before. That is extremely valuable for for any lending plat SME lending platform, you know, in order to secure uh, 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 the fact that uh, uh, you know their defaults. You know, I think the whole KYC space is going to get a huge boost and and a lot of attention from from VCs in that space, 
uh, given the current scenario. You're in the process of raising another fund, right? How How is that going in the present environment? Is that, I can imagine that's quite tough. I would I would lie if I would say it, it doesn't influence us yeah. at all. Um, uh, of course, it does. Um, however, like like uh, thankfully we we started very early on. Uh, so so it's a process. Also, not only from a startup perspective, but also from a VC perspective, it takes a very long time uh, to raise funds. And because majority of our investors are are financial institutions, it takes also in general a couple of months longer. Now, thankfully, because we already started uh, touching base with all these incumbents uh, uh, beforehand and, and built a very good relationship and, and met them a couple of times face to face. Now, uh, thankfully, these these uh, projects they are moving forward, also uh, in these uh, uh, difficult times. Um, uh, not as quickly as we hope, but we're very confident that uh, we will be closing our our third fund uh, very very soon, at least. And even without that fund, are you still able to invest in new companies and and reinvest in existing ones? So we're, we're still open. Uh, we uh, have some very significant chunk of our money reserved uh, for our portfolio companies. Um, uh, that's just uh, the strategy, how we how we perform. Uh, we can invest up to uh, 15 million into a company. So that's some significant money uh, for, for, the, for the first uh, bigger ticket, uh, bigger check uh, investor. We just invested in two additional deals uh, now recently, uh, which we're going to announce uh, very soon. Uh, but overall, yeah, we're still open. And uh, uh, in that sense, uh, business uh, continues as usual. Martin, so I just wanted to start by talking about trade finance. So I think one of the things that the pandemic has demonstrated to us is that our supply chains are probably much more fragile than we thought. And you know, for example, I think something like 80% of PPE comes from China. And so what a lot of people are saying is that this is going to lead to a sort of acceleration and reshoring of production. Do you agree with that statement? And if so, how will that affect global trade and global trade finance? So I, I'm not sure that the um, the pandemic is the only driver in the change of global trade. Uh, I think there's been a, a shift in the, the ethos of global trade now for a couple of years. So there was a, a clear benefit to uh, moving uh, most manufacture and extending supply chains east when uh, when China uh, initially opened its markets because of the uh, the cost of labor. Uh, but what's changed, I think, in the last couple of years, which started to drive this macro trend, is uh, the fact that a lot of goods manufactured in China are now for domestic consumption. Uh, and that percentage of domestic consumption is actually been rising now for some years through the creation of the new middle class in China uh, in relatively recent economic uh, terms. But I, I think there's been a number of disasters in supply chains which have uh, indicated the fragility of these very um, untransparent and strung out global uh, supply chains. Uh, if you go back to the uh, the Japanese nuclear di- disaster from the tsunami, I think that that really underlined significantly 
the risks that were with trying to outsource, I guess, the responsibility for your supply chain to uh, low-cost centers around the world. Uh, I think what this pandemic has done is, is two things, uh, which build on that sort of uh, emerging trend you can see in the numbers. Uh, it, it's, it, it's shown that uh, cost should not be the only uh, factor in determining how you structure a supply chain. So security of supply chains is actually becoming uh, front and center in the way that supply chains are being designed. And that's most definitely going to change a lot of uh, of trade in the next uh, one to five years. Uh, but also the, the lack of transparency has come front and center as well. Uh, the fact of the matter is um, most people didn't know that uh, most PPE equipment came from, from China. Uh, most people who buy PPE equipment didn't know that it came from China. Um, they're just buying equipment um, without any visibility into the the, the sort of the, the further reaches of the of the supply chain. Um, but I say this is something that's been happening for a while. If, if you look at the the numbers in terms of uh, trade, uh, effectively uh, at the highest level, uh, trade looks like it's stalled in terms of growth. Uh, but when you sort of unpack that and look within it, actually. It's not really stalled within w w in terms of growth. It's that the way that we track uh, trade is uh, uh, really aligned to physical logistics uh, chains, where actually what's happening is a, a rebalancing um, of uh, global trade as the uh, as the economy moves on to a new phase globally. So, with more and more of the former low cost production countries now consuming more of those goods, that's not showing up in the trade figures, obviously. But they are now producing a lot more services-based exports than they were previously. So there's actually a, a very, very rapid rise in global services export across borders, which is very, very hard to track by traditional methods. Yep. Uh, and there's less of a a, a, a focus on the uh, traditional logistics networks, uh, which tracked uh, physical trade uh, previously. So I think what we're seeing is it's just a natural evolution of trade. I think... Trade volumes, if you include services as well, uh, more complex services particularly, and the gig economy are, are definitely uh, increasing, just not easily trackable. And for me, the, the main change that we're going to see from this pandemic is uh, there'll be more of an insistence that uh, supply chains are visible all the way uh, through uh, and that there'll be proactive decisions made as to what products need to have uh, you know, more strategic onus in terms of understanding the complexity globally of how to get the final products uh, shipped versus, uh, you know, things which are uh, much more of a commodity where it doesn't really matter whether or not they're disruptive. And if, this, if the future of trade is much, much more intangible, much, much more services-based, what does that mean for trade finance? Do, do those sorts of, does that sort of trade require the same level of of, of trade finance or not? Yes. Um, so services finance is uh, is slightly different uh, in two respects. One is uh, the term for which you need financing for is probably shorter because it's more to do with the payment terms of your uh, your, your 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 contracts. Uh, whereas with physical trade, it's to do with the you know the the, the manufacture and the shipping generally are the longest period of the the credit uh, terms which are required. It also means that the types of products are different. Whereas when you're looking at physical logistics, you have uh, goods or components of goods, physical goods, which can be taken as security, uh, or at least assignment of those goods. And the control of the, those goods can be used as, as a securitization mechanism. 
Whereas with services, that's, that's, that's not really the case. What you need to do is really look at the, the class of open account trade uh, finance products, really looking at the inflows and outflows uh, from the companies that you're providing uh, credit to, uh, and looking at sort of the, the less tangible assets that are available for securitization, uh, mainly things like receivables, uh, and looking at the other creditworthiness factors of those companies. Uh, as opposed to the physical goods required for securitization in, in more traditional trade. And how well set up are lenders for that transition from tangible to intangible trade, do you think? Uh, I think generally very badly. Uh, if you look at the level of innovation in trade finance, it's been incredibly low for more than two decades. I mean, guarantees and letters of credits have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, you know, it's... It's kind of mind-boggling to think that in 2020, you know, we're talking about 15 years after the advent of the internet, that we're still using the same documents and, and uh, finance mechanisms as have been around for hundreds of years. Uh, so I, I think what we're about to see is, is a rapid product innovation cycle for trade finance, which is more suited to um, clients who've got less tangible assets and to more of a gig and services-driven economy where those services are being delivered across uh, across borders. And the the product category which is most suited to that currently is that sort of open account or structured trade, where you can look at um, sort of inflows and outflows into the end of the year financing and dominion over cash accounts as the way that you securitize uh, products. If we think about SMEs, right, just to change tact sli- slightly, right? So... It's, it seems it seems to us that during the pandemic, SMEs have been worst hit because they've got smaller balance sheets and, and they're, you know, arguably less able to withstand the shock and then potentially less able to bounce back after the pandemic. How well do you think governments have done in supporting those SMEs and how well have finance, financial institutions done in supporting those SMEs? And, and does it in the same way un, kind of um, uncover deficiencies in the way that lending is done today because it's because it's been so heavily tied to to physical assets we look at the government's uh, response to the pandemic uh, i i think the strategy is right uh, that they want to get massive injection of uh, liquidity into the sme sector particularly uh, why is that important so if we look at the uk as an example um the the uk uh, sme sector uh, employs over 20 million people in a country of 65 million people. So if, if you don't support the SMEs through this, uh, you're going to end up with a very deep and painful recession if we lose all the SMEs because nobody's going to be able, to, nobody's going to be in work by the end of it. Um, and that's, you know, that just becomes a, a, a self-fulfilling spiral at that point in time. Uh, so the idea is right. Um, the, the way they're going about it though is, is basically using this, the usual channel. So, Again, if I use the, the UK example, they're trying to flow, uh, let's say, roughly a year's worth of uh, sort of liquidity and credit into the SME sector uh, using uh, initially 40, uh, a 40 strong panel of lenders, which are traditional high street lenders. Um, so that's a fraction of the capacity which would normally flow that credit in, into the market over a year. And none of those lenders have infinitely elastic capacity to deal with new queries. Most of them are not specialists in SME uh, credit positioning or, uh, or lending. And uh, the information 
which they would normally utilize in order to come up with a credit decision model, is not, not available any longer, or all of the SMEs uh, would fill those credit decisioning uh, criteria. So I, I think the, the schemes have been rushed out and not thought through well enough. Um, and I, I don't think that we're going to see massive distribution of, uh, so we take the UK again as an example, the 330 billion, um, we're not going to see that distributed anytime soon. Uh, given that uh, the SMEs in questions probably have a roughly a month of runway left on average, uh, you know, there, there's no way for, for the, the government to actually uh, distribute that, uh, those funds in a meaningful way. Um, so I think there's, there's some major challenges with the way that the, the government schemes have been developed. Um, it's a step in the right direction, but there's a lot more work to be done to be able to enable the distribution uh, at scale of those funds. And the one thing which has been overlooked in all of this by all of the governments is technology. Yeah. Uh, my view is that you need to use new types of infrastructure and technology, um, which can be adopted and deployed quickly uh, to solve this problem at scale. You can't depend on the traditional distribution channels. There needs to be a more coordinated national effort on distribution, which involves new technology. Yeah, because listening to you, it sounds like, so as far as I understand, right, there aren't too many sort of criteria attached to these credits. They're going to SMEs. But, but we're faced with a different type of bottleneck, as you say, which is not about how the lenders score the SMEs, which was a problem pre-crisis, but just simply we don't have a scalable enough technology infrastructure to deal with the volume of applications. So I think what, if I listen to you, it seems like at its root, this is a technology problem rather than a, a risk scoring or or any problem in methodology, but yeah, well, you can kind of um, you can separate uh, those two dimensions. Um, I, I do think that credit decision is still a problem because the industry has been really bad at doing um, sort of credit decisioning on on SMEs because the the credit models that are around, you know, they've basically uh, been developed over the last ten to, to to forty years, and they're not really suited to uh, small uh, companies that are not not stable. You know, that don't have uh, track records, don't have uh, years of credit data. Uh, you know, thin credit files is, is what's called in the, in the industry. Uh, the, the industry's not set up to lend to those types of companies in, in the first place. And that problem still needs to be solved because even, even with the government schemes that have been put in place, uh, many of them only partially guarantee the, uh, the credit. So there's still a need to do credit decisioning. Uh, so if I use the, the UK example again. Uh, it's an 80% guarantee. So the, the government's um, taking 80% of the risk and the bank's taking 20%. The bank is still going to do the same credit assessment as it always does, not 20% of the risk. Um, the, the problem of technology is quite interesting. Uh, what we're hearing from all of the banks that we talk to is consistent, that none of the banks um, actually have the ability to do uh, straight-through processing on applications for SMEs. All of the banks have uh, paper in the system. In fact, uh, you know, we know of a bank, our own bank, who um, uh, told us that they can't put a uh, an overdraft facility in place, which we'd agreed before the crisis, because of a lockdown in one of their operation uh, centers overseas, which means that nobody can go into the office and print out a physical piece of paper required to approve the uh, the overdraft. Uh, and that's sort of symptomatic of where the banks are. I mean, they've they've, they've moved from legacy systems, um, you know, they're moving at pace, but uh, they're not able to uh, sort of respond in a matter of weeks in order to, to deal with this unprecedented sort of demand of, uh, of credit applications. Whereas if you look at new cloud-based uh, infrastructure, it, it, can, it can actually uh, um, uh, respond. 
so the, 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 the consistent feedback that we're getting is that uh, over, uh, overall, the banks don't have the sort of workflow orchestration and automation capabilities. Uh, they don't have standard uh, technical capabilities and automation capabilities, such as centralized task uh, list management, uh, sort of role-based user management on all of their systems so that across different teams, people can see when stuff needs to be passed off. Uh, there's not a, a dropping of the applications between, say, relationship managers and credit managers and documentation. Um, there's no standard way of, of actually uh, triaging documents and information through the entire system. Uh, you know, stuff needs to be printed off from one system and then re-entered in another system. Uh, yep. And documents need to be taken from one place and stored in a central place and then accessed from somewhere else. Uh, and all the meantime, they're going back to the customer and asking them for the same information multiple times in, in many cases, or asking them for information uh, which they're not being precise about the request and getting the information in um, a format which doesn't suit the processing of the application uh, automatically. Uh, so th these are the capabilities which, you know, they're not rocket science, but these are the capabilities the bank don't have because of the, the legacy of how the, the systems are growing up. So if this is a moment where reputations are made and lost, I mean, how how do you think the reputation of of your lender, for example, somebody who sort of says, I can't service you because because, you know, there's a piece of paper that I can't get from India or whatever. How, like, do, would you con would you continue to use your, your lender post-crisis? We've already set up another bank account with a new banker. Okay, okay, so you've answered the question. So you really are. So you, A, you're voting with your feet, and B, you're proving the point that, you know, businesses have long memories. and Yeah, well, we, we, we may or may not uh, vote with our feet, but up until this point, we weren't looking at being multi-banked. Um, now, now we're going to be multi-banked. Um, right. So you know, it's it's uh, so demand will will always determine the shape of the market, um, and in times of stress, uh, you need to see rapid innovation in order to meet the changing uh, demands of the marketplace. And if you don't see that, then you know you're you're going to ultimately see a decline in your business, and you're going to see yourself replaced by uh, nimbler, faster moving um, sort of more digital um, innovation propositions. Interestingly, the alternate lenders are in a better a better position. So many of the alternate lenders who are now being added to the panels uh, will be able to deal uh, with processing a lot better, uh, but their scale is much smaller anyway. Yeah. I mean, the funds that they have and the covenants on their, their funds are much more restrictive. So they're, they're not going to be able to um, solve the distribution problem at national or international scale either. But so, so what is the answer? Because so it sounds like... You know, it seems obvious, right, that the answer is to introduce better tech that can link the lenders that have the balance sheet with the SMEs that, that need the money. But I guess, you know, playing devil's advocate, if, if, if SMEs have only got, say, a month of, of um, runway, it's quite difficult to think that we could be up and running with an entirely new lending infrastructure in a month right or or i mean so w what do you think the answer is to this because it's a very 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 short window to address this problem right yeah look it's it's a really good question um i think the problem is who makes the decision that's that's the that's the problem as with most um success or failure criteria with technology projects it's not the technology which is the issue it's the change management which is the issue and that's it's you know that's the way it's always been. So the question here is, who makes that decision? 
uh, you know, how, how do we represent the national interest and how do we mobilize around that? The banks are going to work within, um, I guess, the swim lane that they know well, which is, you know, the systems process and technology and the operating processes they have in place today. And they're going to tinker with them as best they can. The government uh, doesn't really understand the problem, uh, in my view, which is why they're not addressing it. So they need the feedback to, f- to, to figure out uh, how to address the problem. But then it's like, well, who should make the decision? Um, the, you know, governments don't want to interfere in commercial uh, banking or, or business practices, but uh, commercial businesses are not um, intending to make the scale of change which is required to address the the uh, the problem in the timeframes required. These are unprecedented times, so there's there's no right answer. But I don't think we're talking about solving the right problems. Um, so my own personal view is this needs a nationally coordinated response. There needs to be a a central sort of uh, body, which basically comes up with a template for how the problem gets solved to create 10x to 100x capacity in the system in a matter of days or weeks. And it basically either recommends or mandates that to to the the various different participants in uh, in the distribution of of the funds. How confident are you that that will actually happen there? Because... Or do you think that, like in any crisis, we'll have to see a lot of SMEs hit the wall before this sort of is escalated to the point where we actually do something as big and bold as you're suggesting? Uh, look, I, I think there's very, very little chance that what I've suggested is actually what's going to happen. I think for the individuals involved in sort of making decisions, it's it's either it, it's it's not obvious that that's that's what the approach needs to be uh, in the national interest, or uh, there's too much fear. That um, you know, if they go at that route and get it wrong, that their their head personally is going to be on the chopping block um, after the the crisis uh, sort of uh, abates. Uh, so you know, I, I actually think that from where we are, there is there is uh, very little chance that there'll be significant uh, support distributed to save the SMEs in any country. Um, I, you know, bar bar a few. You know, I think there's just going to be extreme pain by the SME sector despite the goodwill and all the effort by, by the governments because they just don't know how to deal with these problems. And, and they're using peacetime governance processes to try and deal with wartime situation. That's, that's the yeah. analogy. Um, and it just doesn't work. Uh, you, know, you need to think differently. You need to think from first principles uh, on, on how to do this. Um, and you need to think pragmatically. But um, you know, it's, it's just not how the, the structure and fabric of, uh, of government is set up. And it's not there's there's no one actor in the system uh, at this point in time outside of government that I can see who actually uh, is incentivized or has the vision to do all of this. And if we if we move away for a second from the macro to the micro, what what about individual banks? Are you still seeing um you know the same banks and financial institutions you were dealing with pre-pandemic continuing with their projects and continuing with their their strategy, or do you see everything kind of you know being put on hold because um, you know, in, when we were researching for this, we saw a statistic where 93% of, of technology companies had said that they'd been adversely affected um, by the pandemic with customers putting projects on hold. Is it, are you seeing that or are you seeing that, you know, the individual institutions see that this is precipitating a need for much better tech and they're just pushing ahead anyway? So what's, what's been the reaction of, of customers and potential customers? Uh, like we're actually, I think our industry, sort of Lintech generally, is going to be one of the winners uh, from from uh, the the uh, the, um, the new reality that 
that sort of emerges after the uh, the pandemic stops uh, sort of locking down the world. We're actually seeing, um, you know, an acceleration of demand from what I call late stage uh, prospects and, and customers. They want stuff done quicker because they realize that until they get paper and relationship bias out of their origination um, and sort of credit management processes that uh, they're always going to be exposed to stresses in, in, in the market and not be able, not have the ability to react as quickly as they would like to, uh, to react. So, um, from, from that perspective, our problem is that the, uh, I guess the equity funding that we are planning to take on, which was very close to being finalized, got pulled overnight. Uh, so we're in a situation where we've got accelerating demand, but we're massively under resourced to deal with that demand. So, uh, we can't play as big a part in uh, in in uh, in solving the problems as we would like to, uh, and we're also seeing that in the short term, uh, most of our customers are uh, you know arguably th- this is is the the safe choice to do is they're 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 looking to utilize the existing sort of systems processes and know how within the 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 organization in order to optimize what they currently have running. Um, you know, and that that there's there's a, there's a lot of sensible reasons as to why they would do that. Um, but you know, when you look at the statistics, where uh, I think up until the beginning of last week in the UK, again, there was about 90, uh, 90 million of funds distributed under the Siebel scheme, um, and that's uh, against a target of uh, three hundred and thirty billion. And all of that, you know, needs to be distributed in a matter of months. So there's there's a long way to go, and yeah. probably no one size fits all. So all of the optimization and the problem solving traditional channels just going on that's absolutely needed, uh, probably needed quicker. Uh, but I, I do think that there still needs to be new channels which are created as well, and a much more coordinated sort of uh, national interest plan um, around the logistics and the challenges of distribution of such large sums of of, of funds. And do you think the government should be doing more to support? the uk's nascent fintech sector because it seems almost like you know you could you could do two things at once right kill two birds with one stone because if you were to sort of you know inject more support into into the fintech sector and the fintech sector you know in a way is the answer to the technology issue then you could kind of you know you could both build new infrastructure and 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 you know inject much needed capital and uh, in, into companies that really need it right well, a couple of a couple of points around the fintech sector. I mean, one is uh, the fintech sector is uh, is unusual. Uh, it falls outside the, um, the 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 funding schemes of most governments because it's high growth and massively loss making. Uh, so you know, it's it's not a good credit risk if you just look at the the, the numbers and the inflows and the outflows. Um, so it, it hasn't been addressed <clears throat> uh, for the most part by the schemes that are already in place. So you do, do need to have a separate scheme to deal with uh, with fintech. I, I do think that there needs to be a role for fintech to solve the problem. I know what I, I talk about is the national interest to create that distribution infrastructure capability. But but how do you do it without without sort of choosing winners and losers? So um, I, I think there's been wide criticism of how, how governments try to do that before. And one example I'll use is. Um, is the, the British Competition Remedies Fund set up in the UK last year, where 450 uh, million was distributed because um, it was deemed to be illegal state aid to, um, to the RBS uh, during 2008. Um, well, this was set up as an independent body, which in theory sounds like a good thing, but it, practically what happened was the BCR basically 
made winners out of thin air uh, and massively uh, disadvantaged the rest of the industry. Um, and the process was done in a, in a very, very unusual way, which has been open to massive amounts of criticism. And to date, 100 million of that has already been returned. But now that 100 million sitting there, it's like, well, there's a pot of money which could be distributed much more quickly to help uh, you know, fintechs who can provide part of the solution. But there's no mechanism in place for government or this independent body to actually do that. So most of the discussion today has been around uh, how to extend the distribution to fintech lenders. Um, and that's definitely critical. And, you know, arguably, that is the highest priority. But it, it, it's, uh, you could flip it in its head and say, how does uh, tech in fin help better? So tech fin as rather than fintech, how do we how do we how do we harness that? Because we set up this task force uh, of, of uh, sort of technology in, in fintech. Uh, and there's now 10, uh, 10 organizations uh, sort of loosely associated with this task force trying to find ways to solve the problem and combine our solutions to try and form a bigger part of the, of the, the solution, which would be easier for uh, you know, the nation or the industry to deal with. Um, and, and what we find is, uh, is that there's just no on-ramp. You know, there's, there's nobody who's got an interest in, in having that conversation at this point in time. Because uh, nobody understands uh, the role which that type of or that sector of, of fintech can play, and you know there's too much to be done just to solve the the problems of getting more lenders on the panel at this point in time. Um, so, so my view is that um, we need to be able to uh, come up with a safe method for the distribution channels that exist to actually play with new technology quickly. Uh, because the type of technology we're talking about can be made available in a matter of days or weeks. Uh, it's all cloud-based. It's uh, theoretically infinitely elastic. Um, and you know it, it's completely digital, so it has no documentation, and it can connect up customer data directly to the processes. And these are all capabilities you need to go to 100x uh, capacity in a matter of, uh, of weeks in a very finite period of time. And that's what's required. And it enables you to better track what's going on sort of uh, post the distribution of funding as well. And if potential, to start claiming it back as well in a more automated way. So you're saying that even post-pandemic, you would envisage that the task force will, will continue because that can become a very useful means to put together combined or composite applications that the industry needs and also to allow the industry to test and uh, trial these applications much faster. Yeah, look, I, I think it's not a it's not a task force um, post the crisis situation. It's just the way the industry works. It's the new reality, and and and, and you know, as in every situation, uh, you know, it's 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 a terrible sort of human catastrophe, uh, but it's also a massive business opportunity. There are going to be winners and losers, just as in every other business situation. Um, the winners are going to be the people who actually realize what the new reality is going to look like. It's fully digital when you talk about sort of lending. There is no paper. There's no relationship bias, and if you don't use this this uh, you know uh, scenario as a way to accelerate your adoption to sort of fully digital lending processes based on new modern infrastructure and technology, you're going to be one of the losers. It's it's that simple, because the the way that um, products have been developed has been sort of stymied by the regulation in the industry. All the, all those the gloves are off. All bets are off. Uh, now it's it's about um, you know supply and demand has turned on its head. It's how quickly can we get can we can we ship? How can we get stuff out the door quicker? And the people who actually 
build a reputation for being able to do that quickly during this period of time are going to come out of this with a real halo effect. Uh, you know, the, the chaos and the stress in the system, this is only going to strengthen the system longer term. Uh, and, and the people who actually see that there's a connection between their response to the crisis and what the new reality looks like are the people who are most likely to be the winners. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about our Aperture community, visit aperturehub.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.